So last week's sermon didn't get recorded because of some technical issues, but I felt compelled to record it again because I thought that the message could be beneficial for uh, any of us who might be struggling with guilt and shame, uh, any of us who might be struggling with anxiety over the particular verse that was discussed. So I'm recording it from my desk in my room. So just as a heads up, I might sound a little different than normal. Uh, Definitely the audio quality is going to sound a little different, but it's uh, not the same uh, preaching to a computer screen as it is uh, preaching to a to a group of faces, a group of people. So, I may sound a little bit different, uh, but hopefully, hopefully that's not uh, a big deal. So here we go. So we are now in our eighth week in our Untamed Jesus series, where we have been looking at the places in the Gospels where Jesus says or does things that seem weird, harsh, or out of character. And the point of this series is just to uh, look at those passages in the Gospels that we might feel tempted to ignore or skip over, and instead of doing that, uh, look at them closely and ask, what can we learn from this? The passage that we are looking at now, the passage that we looked at last Sunday, is, I think, a really important one to talk about, because it's a passage that maybe more than any other passage we've looked at so far, has created a lot of anxiety for a lot of people. It's also a passage that, if misunderstood, can appear to contradict our understanding of Jesus as being forgiving and grace-filled. We hear a lot about how forgiving Jesus is, how he invites us to come to him just as we are, and uh, a passage like this one can seem to contradict that. And actually, the passage that I'm talking about, it really isn't so much a passage as it is just one verse. And if you isolate that verse and you don't read the surrounding context, it can be really anxiety-producing. And there are people who have heard this verse and dwelt on it, and it's led them to depression and despair. In fact, I would say, if I had to guess, I don't have any stats on this, but if I had to guess... This is probably the verse in the Bible that has played a role in more people ending up in mental hospitals than any other verse. And I want to clarify, that's not because there's anything wrong or evil about the verse itself. It's just that when it's misunderstood and taken out of context, it can be a really terrifying verse. So, with that dramatic setup, if you're following along in a Bible, uh, turn to Mark 3, verse 29. Mark 3, 29. This is the verse. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. He is guilty of an eternal sin. So, that's it. Possibly the scariest verse in the whole Bible. And what happens to some people is that they see this verse and they ask themselves, well, could I be guilty of this? I mean, what is blasphemy of the Spirit anyway? Now, some people hear those words, blasphemy of the Spirit, and they think something like, well, I've heard before that taking God's name in vain is blasphemy. And you're not supposed to say Jesus Christ's name unless you're praying or referring to him uh, 
You're not supposed to use this name as a curse word. So maybe what this is saying is that you're not supposed to use the Holy Spirit's name as a curse word. And if you do that, well, that's the, the one unforgivable sin. Other people uh, will hear this verse, and maybe this has happened to you, and you'll assume that blasphemy of the Spirit means something like dishonoring the Spirit. So if that's you, you'll think something like, okay, I must never have a dishonoring thought about the Holy Spirit. But you know what happens when you do that, right? It's the same thing as thinking to yourself, don't think about a pink elephant. Of course, what are you thinking about? You're thinking about a pink elephant. So if you tell yourself, don't ever think a dishonoring thought about the Holy Spirit, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it, what's going to happen? Well, you're going to think something dishonoring about the Holy Spirit. You're going to think something like, ah, the Holy Spirit's a jerk, or maybe something more profane than that. And then after that thought enters your mind, if you have a sensitive conscience, you're going to think, oh no, I just committed the unforgivable sin. And then that leads to despair, depression, anxiety, uh, and a sense that your relationship with the Lord is irreparably broken. And some of you might think that sounds kind of kind of weird, kind of out there, but uh, I did some research on the unforgivable sin. I googled it and looked at websites where uh, people were talking about uh, their take on the unforgivable sin, and it was it was uh, sad and heartbreaking. Uh, how many comments on these websites were from people who were struggling with these ruminating thoughts, where they were afraid to think anything dishonoring about the Holy Spirit. They would think a thought that was dishonoring, and then they would feel like they might be condemned forever because of that. And they'd be stuck in this pattern of ruminating thinking. I, I think it tends to happen most often to uh, younger Christians, uh, adolescent age Christians, um, but really, it could happen to, to anybody with a sensitive conscience and a lack of understanding about this verse. Now, I would say that the number of people that have that particular issue, uh, thinking that they've committed the unforgivable sin because of thinking a negative thought, th- that number of people is probably fairly small. Uh there's probably more people out there who fear that they've committed blasphemy against the Holy Spirit because they did something sinful when they absolutely knew that they weren't supposed to do it. Uh, So people will think, okay, well, following the Holy Spirit means not sinning. If you're following the Holy Spirit, he's going to lead you away from sin. I think that's how that works. So if I choose to sin, I must be blaspheming the Spirit especially if I'm sinning when I know 100% that it is a sin. So when people think this way, uh, this verse is very, very scary because all of us at some point have done something wrong even though we knew that we were doing something wrong. Okay, so those are some of the things that people think when they think of blasphemy, blasphemy of the Spirit. Now, if you have ever been afraid that you have committed the unforgivable sin, if that's something that's ever weighed on you, kept you awake at night, today I want to set you free from that fear because I can assure you that if you are genuinely concerned about this issue, 
you have not committed the unforgivable sin. Because when Jesus talks about blaspheming, blaspheming the Spirit, uh, he's not talking about thinking a negative thought about the Holy Spirit. He's not talking about using the Holy Spirit's name as a curse word. Uh, he's not even talking generally about committing a sin, even though you knew it was a sin. None of those things are good, but he's really talking about something else. He's talking about something specific. So what is he talking about? Well, to figure that out, let's look at the broader context of this verse. That should always be our policy when dealing with a single verse. So going back a few verses to Mark 3.20, here's what it says. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, He is out of his mind. And the teachers of the law, who came down from Jerusalem, said, He's possessed by Beelzebub. By the prince of demons he's driving out demons. So Jesus called them and spoke to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end is come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he can rob his house. I tell you the truth. All the sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven them. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. He is guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying, he has an evil spirit. So, as that last verse there tells us, the reason Jesus brings up this issue about the unforgivable sin is because of the way the teachers of the law, the religious leaders of the time, are responding to his ministry. And what they're doing is they're witnessing Jesus' miracles, they're watching as he drives demons out of people, and they're claiming that his ability to drive out demons is coming from Satan. Now, I want us to notice, they're not denying or questioning that Jesus is actually driving demons out of people. They're not denying or questioning that Jesus can actually do miraculous things. Because they can't deny it. It's right there for them to see and for everyone else to see. Notice in verse 20, we're told that Jesus can't even get time to eat because a crowd is always gathering around him. And the reason Jesus is always gathering a crowd is because word is getting out that he can do miracles. A little earlier in this chapter, it describes the kind of thing that Jesus is doing. It says, For he had healed many, so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. Whenever the evil spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. So, the religious leaders, they're witnessing these miraculous signs, they're hearing about these miraculous signs, and they know that they're not going to be able to say, this is all fake. They're not going to be able to do that and get away with it. And I want us to recognize how remarkable that is. How remarkable is it that the signs that Jesus was doing were so clearly miraculous that even his enemies couldn't deny his power? It's pretty remarkable. So the religious leaders knew they're not going to be able to get away with just saying this is all fake. 
So instead of doing that, they accuse Jesus of getting his power to heal and exercise demons from Satan, also known as Beelzebub. And they said, okay, yeah, Jesus has supernatural power. Not going to deny that, but it's supernatural power from an evil source. And it's that claim that leads Jesus to say, whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. And of course, Jesus' words there suggest that what the religious leaders were doing was, if not blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, at least getting close to being blasphemy of the Spirit. They were at least treading in dangerous waters. So, what exactly was it that the religious leaders were doing? That's the, the question we have to ask. And here's how I would put it. The religious leaders were denying what they knew to be true about Jesus. They were denying what they knew to be true about Jesus. Instead of recognizing him as Lord, they accused him of being a servant of the devil. Now you might say, well, maybe they really did think he was getting his power from the devil. If they really did think that, that's not fair to judge them, is it? I mean, maybe they were just trying to be good shepherds of the people. Maybe they're just trying to guard them from false teaching. And maybe they really were convinced Jesus is an agent of the devil. But I can assure you, I feel very confident that the religious leaders did not actually think in their heart of hearts that Jesus got his power from the devil. Because there was just no good reason for them to think that. And I'm not trying to suggest that we should always assume that supernatural things are caused by God. Uh, we shouldn't. Sometimes supernatural things happen, and the agent is is not God, uh, not an angel, uh, but something darker. Uh, there are there are demonic spirits, according to to the scriptures, and they do exercise power in uh, in somewhat remarkable ways sometimes. Um. But when we're assessing the source of a, of a miraculous event, we have to consider what the fruit of that miracle is. And when we consider the fruit of Jesus' work, uh, it is hard to imagine why anyone would attribute it to an evil force. Uh, people were being freed from demonic possession. And when people are freed from demonic possession, they go from having no peace to having peace. They go from having uh, no self-control to having self-control. They go from being out of their minds to being of sane mind. And so if you were alive during Jesus's ministry and you were witnessing people being freed from demonic possession, people moving from brokenness to restoration, what good reason could you possibly have for attributing that work to Satan? I can't think of one. And Jesus can't think of one either. And so he calls out the religious leaders on how illogical they're being. He says, how can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If Satan is driving out his own demons, that's like American soldiers going and attacking their own military outposts. It's just completely counterproductive. It doesn't make any sense to assume that that's what's going on with Jesus. 
there's a principle in logic called Occam's razor, which says, all things considered, the simplest explanation is the most likely one. There, in other words, there's no reason to assume uh, an explanation that is complicated when a simple explanation will suffice. And most of us intuitively understand this. And Occam's razor is a, a very helpful logical principle, and it's it seems particularly appropriate to apply it to this sort of instance. Because if we uh, assume that Jesus is actually getting his power from Satan and that he's driving out demons through the power of Satan, it's this very convoluted explanation for what's going on that is needlessly complex. Why would Satan be doing this? Why is he attacking himself? You know, it's a, it's a, it's a um, it's a it's an explanation that is a very conspiratorial way of thinking. But the simple explanation is the one that makes a lot more sense. That Jesus is who he says he is, and that he is, through the power of God, um, freeing people from demonic strongholds. And that what what it looks like, people being healed, people being set free, is in fact what is going on. So, the religious leaders don't really think, deep down, that Jesus is getting his power from Satan. They, they might be trying to convince themselves of that, but they just don't have a good reason to think that. So what they're doing is they are willfully suppressing the truth about who Jesus is. Not because um, they don't have the evidence, but because they don't want to believe it. Uh, they feel like their power is threatened by Jesus, and they love their power too much to let the truth get in the way. And it's that attitude, if it persists, that's the unforgivable sin. That's blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit's job is to lead us to faith in Jesus. That's what he works to do in the world. So if the Holy Spirit demonstrates in a clear way that Jesus is Lord, and then we resist that, because we're too proud or we want to preserve our power, then we can't be forgiven. Because what we've said, in effect, to Jesus is, I refuse to acknowledge you as Lord, even though you've demonstrated to me that you are. And I have to say, I don't think that when Jesus is talking about the unforgivable sin, he's talking about, say, someone who has sincere, honest doubts about whether or not Jesus is Lord. Maybe you know somebody like that, or somebody who seems like that, somebody who seems to be honestly seeking but isn't sure yet. I don't think Jesus is talking about somebody like that. The religious leaders didn't have sincere, honest doubts because the Holy Spirit was making it very plain to them in dramatic ways who Jesus was. But they were still denying him. Not because of a lack of evidence, not because they didn't have what they needed to be convinced, but because their power and their pride were more important to them than the truth. Now, maybe after I've said all that, you're still a little worried that you've committed the unforgivable sin. Because maybe at some point in your life, deep down in your heart, you were utterly convinced that Jesus really is Lord but you still denied him. You still denied him with the way that you lived your life and perhaps even with your words. Well, if you have since changed your mind, 
want to reassure you, you have not committed the unforgivable sin. Because the unforgivable sin is an attitude of the heart that is permanent. It's a fixed attitude and it doesn't change. I mean, when Jesus says these words, I do not think he is telling the religious leaders that they have already committed blasphemy of the Spirit. But he is giving them a warning that if they persist in this attitude, that will be an unforgivable sin. I think it's significant that Jesus says blasphemy of the Spirit is an eternal sin. That he who is guilty of blasphemy of the Spirit is guilty of an eternal sin. If you reject Jesus, but then you sincerely turn to him and repent, then clearly you have not committed blasphemy against the Spirit because it's not an eternal sin. So, to sum up, what is the unforgivable sin? Well, there's three conditions that have to be met in order for a person to commit the unforgivable sin. The first is they must reject Jesus. They must reject Jesus as Lord. The second, they must do so when the Holy Spirit has made it abundantly clear who Jesus is. And then finally, number three, they have to do so permanently. So the unforgivable sin is to reject Jesus as Lord when the Holy Spirit has made it abundantly clear who Jesus is and to do so permanently. So I hope you can see that if you're worried at all that you've committed the unforgivable sin, it's impossible that you have. Because if you're worried about it, it's probably because you believe Jesus is Lord. The fact that you're so concerned about this shows that you put a lot of value on what Jesus says. You care about what Jesus says. Why would, why would you care so much about what Jesus says if you didn't actually see him as Lord? So if you're worried about it, you shouldn't be. Because <laughs> you're not like the religious leaders that Jesus was warning. The religious leaders didn't care about what Jesus said they were rejecting what Jesus said, and they were rejecting him. So if at this moment you really care about what Jesus said, I don't think this warning is really for you. If you believe Jesus is Lord, you don't have to stay up at night wondering, have I committed the unforgivable sin? And honestly, I think it's sad that this passage creates anxiety for so many people, because really... This passage has one of the most incredible declarations of God's grace in the entire Bible. Because even though it mentions this unforgivable sin, did you hear what Jesus said right before that? He says in verse 28, I tell you the truth, all the sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven them. Did you hear that? (laughs) All the sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven them. What Jesus is saying there is that there is no sin so awful that there isn't a potential to be forgiven. Nothing. Nothing except the permanent rejection of Jesus as Lord after the Holy Spirit has made that clear to you. Everything else has the potential to be forgiven because of the price Jesus paid through his death on the cross. All the sins and blasphemies of men. Think about that for a moment. That candy bar you stole when you were a kid, that can be forgiven. 
the time you took Jesus' name in vain, or the many times you did that, (laughs) that also can be forgiven. The time you insulted and humiliated a classmate for no reason, no reason really, just because he could, just because it made you feel superior, that can be forgiven. The time you got drunk and got in a fight with someone, and you, you don't even remember why, that can be forgiven. That one night stand, that can be forgiven. The time you were selling drugs, that can be forgiven. The truth is, if we take Jesus at his word here, there are sins that can be forgiven that many of us would be uncomfortable to even speak aloud in church. Things that the very mention of could trigger intense feelings of discomfort. So, I'm not going to list those sins now, uh, but I encourage you to take a moment to think of something that you have done that you would never want anyone to know about. Something that you're too ashamed of to speak out loud. Maybe it's something you've never even told a single other person that you did. Uh, Maybe you've only told one or two people that you ever did it. Honestly, I think most of us carry at least one sin from our past that we really hope no one finds out about. And I want you to think of whatever that is. Um, that thing that you are not able to forgive yourself for or that you struggle to forgive yourself for or maybe that you doubt that God could ever forgive you for. And I want you to hear Jesus' words in reference to that very thing. All the sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven them. And hear that beautiful little word, all. All. (laughs) Whatever you're thinking of, However embarrassing, however shameful, it is not so bad that forgiveness is not available to you. And I want to be clear, that's not because whatever it is you've done isn't actually bad. I mean, I don't know for sure what you're thinking of. It's possible that you're thinking of something that was more done to you than something that you actually did. But there is a good chance that whatever is in your mind is something that you should not have done and you knew you shouldn't have done. And I'm not saying that that's insignificant. I'm not saying that sin doesn't matter. It does matter. But because of what Jesus Christ has done on the cross, that sin doesn't have to condemn you. What Jesus did on the cross is more powerful than that sin. And if we truly put our faith in him, if we really submit to Jesus as Lord, those sins... They, they can't condemn us. Now, I realize that that message can seem too good to be true. So, to help any of us who still need convincing, I have put together a list, which is by no means exhaustive, of what some of the heroes of our faith are guilty of, according to Scripture. And these are just some of the sins we know about. I'm sure there are plenty more that the Bible never even talks about. All right, so first up is Noah. Noah, after the flood, uh, drank so much that he passed out. You would think that a guy who had watched the whole world get judged by a flood and was miraculously spared from that would really be on his best behavior, would really be super holy, but uh, this embarrassing incident is recorded after he is saved and he and his family are rescued. 
So Noah, definitely not a perfect man. Uh, Abraham. Abraham claimed that his wife was his sister so that the Pharaoh, who found his wife attractive, would take her as his wife without hurting him. So basically he lied and he gave his wife over to another man in order to preserve his own life. Pretty cowardly. You've got a lie there. You've got cowardly behavior. Um, you definitely don't have Abraham demonstrating the kind of love towards his wife that you would expect from a holy man of God. Um, and not only that, but he did this twice. Scripture says he does pretty much exactly the same thing uh, to Abimelech, king of Gerar. Uh, Abraham also doubted God's promise to give him a son through his wife Sarah. So instead of waiting on God to do that, he tried to have a son through his wife's maidservant, Hagar. And I recognize that uh, in Old Testament times, uh, things were a little complicated in regards to uh, uh, polygamy and that sort of thing and what counted as polygamy. But as far as I'm concerned, in God's eyes, uh, what Abraham did was adultery. And he committed it. He committed adultery because he wasn't trusting that God would be faithful to his promise. So that's Abraham, the father of the Jewish nation, uh, the one to whom God promised the whole world would be blessed through. And yet he is a, a deeply flawed man. Then we have Jacob. Jacob lied to his dying father in order to steal his brother's birthright. Real classy. Moses, uh, Moses actually killed an Egyptian man and then tried to hide it. Um, he also saw uh, God appearing to him in a theophany, as it's called. He appeared to him through a, a burning bush that was not actually burning. Um, and despite this dramatic encounter with God, uh, he still asked God to send somebody other than him to go and rescue his people. He said, no, no, send somebody else, please. David. Uh, David committed adultery and arranged to have the woman's husband killed. Yikes. And yet, this is a man who is said to be someone who's after God's own heart. Um, he wrote many of the Psalms, these beautiful poetic expressions of love for God. Uh, and yet, he was also deeply flawed. Then there's Peter. Peter denied that he even knew Jesus after Jesus was arrested. And what especially gets me about that, that moment is that Peter did that even though Jesus warned him he was going to do it beforehand. And Peter responded by saying, oh, no, 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 I, I would never. I would never do that. And he still does it anyway. And then there's Paul, who I think might be the best example of all. Paul was persecuting Christians before he was an apostle for Jesus. Uh, in the book of Acts, it says that Paul was breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. And there's one place where it describes Paul as uh, giving approval to the stoning of one of Jesus's disciples. Um, well, not one of the 
the twelve, but uh, one of the early followers of Jesus, Stephen. And you, you got to think, man, if anybody ever had a reason to be afraid that he had committed blasphemy of the Spirit, Paul would be on that list because the Holy Spirit was working to build Christ's church. He was drawing people to faith in Jesus, and Paul was actively resisting that. He was giving approval to the death of Christians. Uh, he was working to, to, to stop the spread of that church. But then he repented, and he became uh, the person who brought the faith to the Gentiles. And as far as I know, Paul never heard Jesus' words there, looked at Jesus' words, and said, Oh, shoot, I blasphemed the Spirit earlier, and that means that I'm never going to be able to be forgiven. No. Uh, Paul believed that Jesus Christ had redeemed him. He didn't think that he deserved that redemption, but he, he did believe that he was redeem, re- redeemed, um, that the sin that he committed uh, was not more powerful than Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. And again, this is by no means an exhaustive list of the sins of the heroes of the Bible. But I think just those examples alone are a powerful illustration of how forgiving God is and how willing God is to work with us in spite of our failures. And again, don't get me wrong. Sin is a big deal. Sin is horrible. Uh, Sin hurts ourselves and it hurts other people. What Chris Crosby preached a few weeks ago is very true. You might remember he uh, preached on the passage where Jesus said, if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. And uh, Chris and I agree that Jesus was not telling us to actually literally mutilate our bodies, but he was using a metaphor, and what he was saying was we should be willing to go to drastic measures in order to cut sin out of our lives. We should not take sin lightly. We should, even if it hurts, cut it out of our lives. And that's an important truth that we need to remember. But alongside that truth, we also need to place this other truth, that regardless of what we've done, there is an opportunity to repent and be forgiven. All the sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven. 1 John 1.9 promises, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. So if today you are feeling weighed down by guilt and shame, if you feel like God can't love you or use you or grow his kingdom because of things uh, you've done, uh, I just want to tell you, those beliefs are not true. They're lies. If you are willing to admit your sin, if you're willing to confess it to God and acknowledge it, If you're willing to acknowledge Jesus as Lord and trust in him, you can be purified from all unrighteousness. As crazy as it might seem, all the sins and blasphemies of men can be forgiven them. The only unforgivable thing is to reject the one who offers that forgiveness. That is the gospel. That's the good news. And my hope and prayer is that today, that news washes over you 
and breathes hope and life into you, maybe for the first time and maybe all over again.